Relevant content for our members by our members. This is TMC Connect. Yeah, so it was it was kind of funny. Yeah, I didn't I didn't think of of tying that together, but we were totally fine with it. But he didn't think that people would want to hear him twice in a row, so <laughs> we moved him. We moved him to a different date. There you mm-hmm. go. And slotted you in there. So thanks everyone for joining us today. This is the last week in mortgage today. People are just starting to flow in. So we're going to give it another 30 seconds or so um, to get going here. So how's your summer going in um, Michigan? Are you in beautiful <laughs> summer or are you like hotter than normal like we are here in Minnesota? It depends on the day. We'll sit there and it'll be hotter than normal. And the next thing you know, a storm come through and then it'll barely reached 70 degrees like it did yesterday and so we're bouncing all over the place so it's a lot of rain but yeah it is that's yeah that's michigan we always say if you don't like the weather just wait a minute it'll change it's gonna be something different yeah um yeah so it uh bernard says you're always hotter than normal (laughs) thank you bernard (laughs) i don't disagree Bernard, I want that statement, I think. (laughs) But I know it's not true. So, all right, we will get going here. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Thanks, Bernard. I love the ditto. Um, We will get going here today. We still have a few people that are joining us. But um, again, last week in Mortgage Today, I am Faith Howard Mooney, the VP of Member Engagement at the Mortgage Collaborative. And I have one of my faves, although I'm not supposed to have them here with me today, Mark Renault, who is the first VP and Mortgage Operations Manager at First State Bank. Mark, thanks for doing this with me today. No, you're welcome. Um, share with us a little bit about who First State Bank is, so people that are on the call have an understanding of kind of the angle you're coming from in the industry. Yeah, uh, First State Bank, we're a 106-year-old community bank in southeastern Michigan. Uh, still third generation, family still owns us. Uh, privately held. Uh, I'd like to say prior to my arrival, which was uh, 12 years ago, uh, they really didn't do mortgages. They said they did, but they couldn't even spell FHA, which is the running joke. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I've been here and actually I got most of my experience as we were talking earlier, um, actually at John Adams Mortgage is where I was working for an independent. And so I have the experience on the banking side and the independent. So I run the bank like an independent. So it's a kind of a unique twist on doing it. Uh, yeah, I think it is. I think it's, I mean, that's great that you have kind of both sides of the equation and understand where um, where everybody's coming from, because there are some instances where things are a little bit, a little bit different um, in each of those spots. So I think we'll get started today, though, by talking about banks and banking and specifically Basel 3, which I just saw today. It's called Basel 3, the end game. It sounds like a movie, right? <laughs> Like, yeah. end game. Does that mean there's never going to be another change after this one? But that's what people are calling it. Yeah. No, um, no. Well, it could be the end game because it may put an end to some people's business if they go through with what they're saying. So, well, yeah. I, yeah. Well, that's true. But I just, I guess I just didn't think that they would name it that for, <laughs> for that kind of a reason. But maybe it was an unintended little little thing there. But it, essentially, banking capital rules um, related to risk. Um, So risk rates right now in mortgage, it's currently a flat 50% um, assigned um, as far as holding back capital. 
Um, but they did propose it was last Thursday. I think it was last Thursday. It might have been the Thursday before um, that banks greater than a hundred billion dollars in assets. Um, they're going to be a change in what that risk assessment is. Yeah, um, capital requirement is <laughs> not just the risk assessment, but yeah. the capital requirement. Um, depending on LTV, somewhere instead of a flat fifty between forty and ninety percent for the large banks, and essentially the thought process I think is higher LTV, higher, higher um, risk. Yeah, what you think about this yeah. whole thing. So I would tell you, yeah. So thankfully, I mean, I'm a billion dollar community bank where I'm at. So it doesn't, this isn't going to affect me. Um, I got a long way to go before it would. However, uh, it's interesting because even back in the crash back in 08, uh, everyone said, oh, the the common phrase you heard all the time, they have no skin in the game. They have no skin in the game. I can tell you here locally in Michigan, uh, where most of my market is, the best performing products we had during those times were our MISHTA loans, which is the state bond program, which requires 1% down. And then our VA loans, which require zero. Not to say they didn't have issues with some foreclosures and that, but those were the best performing products during that time. Because what I have found <laughs> that if you fo- the reason those two work is because they have very strict guidelines. You stick to those guidelines, statistically speaking, those loans are going to perform. You know, it, it's it's pretty amazing actually. If if you have those in place, you don't really have the risk that you think. It's not so much about the skin in the game. And you have some borrowers that are very sophisticated that understand. I'm only going to put 5% down because that other 15%, I'm going to invest. I can make a 15, 20% return on my money. Why put it into the house? And, and I get that. Not everyone is that savvy, but yeah, I, I couldn't disagree more uh, with this proposal, actually. And I'm, I'm not opposed to larger banks having to hold a little bit more capital in, but what they're proposing, that's that could have a, a terrible effect on the mortgage industry in general. Yeah. And so let's talk about that a little bit. Number one, the comment period is open until the end of November. So decision hasn't been made. This is strictly proposed at this point. Um, They are giving banks until the beginning of 2028, Mm -hmm. four and a half years um, to comply, which seems like a long time, but I guess, you know, maybe not when you're talking about changing the structure of some things to retain more capital. Um, you know, one of the other there, um, if anybody reads Chrisman, there was somebody, and I don't know if it was him or somebody else that wrote a couple days ago, um, in his, um, Monday morning report, there are all these other things that we've seen before that are maybe like unintended consequences that could begin to happen Mm -hmm. because of some of, um, you know, having higher capital standards. So one of those that I thought was interesting is, you know, if you think about capital, you know, what capital you have and have access to drives a lot of your decision making. Yes, it does. Absolutely. And and what they're talking about is going to potentially cost some of the larger banking institutions to have to increase their capital holdback by 15, 20 percent. Right. And you do that all of a sudden as a banking institution, you're sitting there going, well, geez, where should I put my investments now? I'm limited as to what I can have here. I have this much less cash. Maybe I'm going to pull back from the mortgage industry. Maybe I'm going to focus on just my small local uh, commercial, you know, environment, or you know, or any other lines of business that they have. But the fact is, they would, you know, if you go, they go through with this, it's going to limit how much funds are available for the mortgage industry. Yeah, I thought that um, one of the, I thought that that was one of the interesting points is like, what lines of business will the 
will the bank now begin to focus on? Because they might have to, many of them probably will have to pick and choose. You don't have the opportunity to do exactly what you're doing right now. Um, And so does that, you know, if they pull back, large banks pull back from mortgage, is that something that helps independents and helps community banks? Or is there still a factor in there that it's kind of like overall, I mean, here within TMC, we like to think stronger together, not necessarily with, you know, the largest banks and and the largest mortgage companies. Um, But is there an impact that kind of trickles down from that that's negative? Yeah, no, I would say absolutely. It's, uh, again, you go down that road and all of a sudden, you you know, where does the financing come from for a majority of uh, the warehouse lines for the independents out there? Uh, Again, I'm fortunate. I don't need a warehouse line, but they sure do. Now, all of a sudden, if there are less funds going towards that, you have just as many originators out there fighting over a smaller piece of the pie to be able to fund their loans. You know, and that's just a small piece of it. And then you have the banks where they may cut back on their origination. They may stop originating as, you know, as much as they possibly can, other than some retail stuff they're doing. So now all of a sudden, uh, with less capital, they may not be supporting the jumbo market. We saw what happened earlier this year when um, I think it was, I think it was not Chase, but um, I think it was Wells that pulled out of the jumbo market. They were no longer buying jumbo loans and providing that financing. Rates ticked up quite a bit as soon as it happened because there's one less out, you know, one less outlet out there. So now, yeah, it's it's definitely going with less money out there. It's going to affect the industry. Everyone. That was one of the other places that I thought was interesting is not only you know it could affect jumbo correspondent. Um, that type of thing, but then does it also have an impact on CRA eligible transactions as as well? Um, because a lot of times the banks are the ones that are buying from IMBs, you know, some of those. And so if that isn't their appetite anymore, then what well, happens with that type of business as well? Yeah, I, I can tell you based on experience, they'll probably never be out of buying the CRA loans because it's one of the major factors we get audited on every year by your regular, whether it's the FDIC, Federal Reserve, the OCC, it doesn't matter. Um, they're looking at your CRA lending. And if you're not doing enough of it, they hammer you pretty good. So that's probably one that would be insulated from the change regardless. But if it, all of a sudden you're limiting uh, your mortgage production to be some small, you know, a small portion of your retail plus buying CRA loans, that leaves a what, by 60, 70% of the market out there with nowhere to sell to. With no outlet. That's yeah. exactly right. There's no That's outlet left um, out there. Um, anything, um, well, the other thing that was in there, which wouldn't impact you again, because community banks feel like they've been kind of spared from this particular space. Most but of one, us, but not all. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, if there is f- further pullback in the mortgage market, um, does it put more pressure on regulation of the IMBs that produce a lot of the business? And um, one of the concerns that I saw that out there is that FHFA and Jenny, um, because of pressure from bank regulators, could seek to extend some of these capital standards and other risk requirements then to also the IMB segment of the industry, which there's been conversation about that um, already. Yeah, and I could absolutely see that happening Um, because, you know, where will it stop? 
no one ever knows. But that is, I could absolutely see them because after they've squeezed as much out of the out of the banks as they can, because legally they can do it. The next obvious target out of the IMB is simply because they own a greater market share. Uh, and that just comes down to most banks are not flexible enough to meet market demands quickly or make changes as they need to, whereas the IMBs are. Um, so because of that, yeah, that would be the next uh, the next large one to go after, in my opinion. So if anybody else has any ideas about out there, I would love to hear them about the Basel 3 endgame and kind of like <laughs> things that you see that may have a trickle down effect. Would love to love to see your comments out there. Um, let's move on a little bit. Last week, I saw an article. No fines or anything have been imposed yet. Yeah. But I thought it was interesting because it's, it's a, a big topic of conversation in the industry right now is LO comp. And it seems like it always is. Sometimes it's just to a bigger degree than yes. other times. Um, but CFPB found some what they called abusive practices um, in allowing LOs that originate both in-house and brokered transactions to be compensated differently for those brokered loans. So share with me anything that you've done related to that with your team, I know there are a lot of different structures out there for different people on different types of transactions. Yeah, no, there there is a lot of different ways of doing it. Now, there is a legal way to actually do that, but you have to be very diligent uh, on the details as far as being able to uh, to differentiate. This lead came from our branch system. Oh, don't die on me, Faith. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I know I could put you to sleep, but man. <laughs> Now, um, if you if you can identify that these leads definitely came from the branch, they weren't self-generated by the LO, they were provided by the banking institution themselves, you can justify paying a, a reduced a, a reduced uh, commission on that for no other reason than it wasn't necessarily had to go. The LO didn't have to go out and earn that. Whereas if they're brokering a loan out for someone that they brought the business in, they're getting paid a little bit more. I get that model. I've actually looked at it. Um, Thankfully for me, I just I say I say thankfully for me, but uh, not so much for the industry. Banking in general, uh, as far as the brick and mortar, is kind of dead anyway. So customers walking in saying, "Hey, I need a mortgage," almost never happens. So I actually went away from that, and I just it's across the board. It doesn't matter if we keep it in house or not. Um, if we put in our portfolio, great. If I sell it, servicing released, which we do that as well, um, they get paid the same. So I I avoid this. I I avoid that bullet altogether. But I could see because with uh, knowing enough people uh, that are in the industry that I know how they run their shops, I could see where they wouldn't have the, the documentation to actually support that. And that could be a real problem. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's become, I don't know, just based on what I've heard, it seems like it's become more common with volume having tapered that people are relooking at some of those policies. So no fines. Um, but they did cite that they felt like it violated Reg Z um, in what they found. So companies weren't identified. I'm sure that will come out somewhere. <laughs> it'll, it'll come out at some point. I apologize. <laughs> Michigan. We talked a little bit about Michigan and like there are tons of mortgage lenders in Michigan. Yes, there are. <laughs> You're kind of like right in the backyard of a lot of these individuals. And I'm sure the things that you see, you see a lot. Um, so this last week, Rocket 
um, launched a product for low to moderate income borrowers to help them, you know, be a homeowner with a 1% down payment. Um, oh, yes, we saw that. Because as soon as, as soon as someone comes out with a program like that, your, your entire sales staff is like, well, can we do this? Where is our program? It's actually kind of funny. They go, the devil's in the details. And I am not, uh, I'm not downplaying it. I think it's a great idea to be able to get more people into homes. Uh, the problem that we, the problem that you run into, because I can tell you, we launched our own program like this about six months ago. And the problem that you run into is most folks that would fall into this area, which is 80% of the AMI, the problem you run into is they're capped at how much they're going to be able to spend. And with the very, very limited inventory that's out right now, it, which has been that way for years, until we find a way to fix that, there's almost no housing inventory for them to even buy to begin with. That's like, that's issue number one. So then if they're forced to kind of go into a larger home or a more expensive home, they also don't qualify because their DTI is too high. It's a great program to be able to do it. It really is. Like I said, I and I love seeing these out there because the program that we were that we're running, I actually had a customer, we talked to him, and it was I talked to him on the phone side to get some clarification. He was literally crying. He's 43 years old, never owned a home, and we were getting him into his first house ever. And uh, it was a little questionable with him for the DTI and what taxes we're going to do, but we worked through everything. And yeah, it's being able to see someone that's never been in that situation all of a sudden become a homeowner. It's fantastic. So the more of these programs, the better. Then I just have to remind my loan officers, hey, we have this program too, slightly different. <laughs> Don't just remember, but yeah, it's there's just real limited uh, options out there for them. But it's a good thing; it really is. You went down the path that I was hoping that you went down because what the thing that I wanted to ask you is how many people do you think that this applies to? Is this more of a marketing um, oh, yeah. sort of <laughs> campaign um, it is. Than, than a big revenue generating? Because it it was um, the statement was made in this article that it's expected that more than 90 million Americans could save thousands of dollars with this. But if, yeah. if every person that qualified to at 80% AMI across, now Rocket's a little bit different because they're across the entire country, but right. if they were able to acquire every cost, every person that was at 80% or less of AMI and they were able to process all of their mortgages, yeah, that number probably wouldn't be too far off. And there was but, no- <laughs> A, you have to have the houses to buy. That's issue number one. Um, but yeah, no, it, it is. I mean, a lot of this is for marketing. And I mean, don't get me wrong. Everyone does it. We did it. So we marketed it. We put it out there. We had a press release. You know, we got a lot of attention. And uh, the fact is we were able to help, you know, a decent number of people, but it was nowhere near 90 million. <laughs> so yeah, there are, there are a lot of people that could qualify if they had something to buy. That That's where the big issue comes into. If there's nothing out there for them to purchase. Having all the programs in the world aren't going to solve the issue. Yeah, which is a great segue into what we were going to talk about next, which it seems like every week it's it's uh, same topic. <laughs> it's what we talk about is the housing supply and um, where it's at. So there's a group out there right now that's proposing a moratorium of two years for federal capital gains tax. Um, as a way of possibly increasing the supply, um, they cited specifically that they feel like one of the biggest issues is the boomer generation, which for those that 
Um, I land in that category. I'm on the very end of it. Though. Say, do we have a definition of that yet? <laughs> 46 to 64. I had to look it up. I knew I was on the end of it, but I didn't know exactly where. Um, but the generation, it's one of the wealthiest, owns a lot of investment properties, um, many of which investment properties they claim are in that ho- affordable housing range, which I thought was really interesting just in and of itself that they called that range under 1.2 million. And it's like, that's an interesting range to be considered, you know, the affordable housing range. They did state that that was in urban and metro areas. So I have a funny feeling that it was kind of coastal, coastal focused instead of, (laughs) you know, in the middle of the United States where we are, although our housing is expensive here, but um, but they felt like people were holding on to properties um, due to the 15% federal capital gains tax and then a 5% state capital gains tax as well. Do you think that by doing something like this, it would financially motivate people to sell? I, I think Summit would. We've actually had this conversation with a number of our investment cu- customers, and that is a big reason why they don't sell it, because right now you have rents that are at all-time highs, so they're making good money on it, especially if they own the properties free and clear. Um, but on top of that, it's having to pay the capital gains and everything else. They're like, yeah, it just it doesn't make sense. I'll just keep, I'll keep collecting the rent because I have a long-term tenant in there. Or, yeah. you know, and, and then, But the other problem that you run into is if these folks sell the home, and I'm not opposed to this idea. I Actually, I like this concept. I really do. The the bigger issue is now essentially you have the people that are renting it, but you're trying to sell it to people to become homeowners. And so are the people renting, are they going to be able to qualify? So now what you have is you have people that you may have to kick out of the house after the lease is over so someone else can actually buy the property. Um, I yeah. think it, cause, it could potentially cause other issues in that in that range. Yeah, it kind of does perpetuate a different cycle, that's for sure, because you may be giving someone affordable an affordable house to move into. But then you may be pushing someone who's had an affordable house to live in out into an environment with higher rents um, as well. Um, they estimated that there would be a four to month, four to five months housing supply across the United States generated by that. Um, if, you, if you did it all at once, which you could not do, because if you did it all at once, you would just decimate the market. Well, and that's one of the things that 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 was that was kind of where I was going with that because one of the things that they mentioned that's like if you there are all these rules that they kind of came up with, of course, around this that like say you own twenty properties all in one county, um, you're not if you put all twenty of those on the market at the same time, you could be killing yourself. I mean, along with <laughs> along with other people as well. Um, but you could only put six or more in one jurisdiction on the market um, at the same time to try to not have that impact on any given um, location. Um, so yeah, so there were um, some time frames and and numbers put around um, put around that, and then of course visited every four months. Um, to be reassessed to see if it was it was something that was even working. Um, it would be regulated by the Department of Housing and Urban Development, so HUD, um, and they would have the right to change the parameters every four months if if they wanted to. Um, in some states, I think um, 
it could be effective, especially ones that just have a severe inventory shortage. But they, uh, the concern was in those places, you know, the, the sunny places, the places that I would love to live, the sunny sand <laughs> places, that there are so many seniors living in those areas um, and own a number of investment properties that they would have to, the states would somehow have to have control over that to not come in and have an entire neighborhood kind of be um, destroyed by everything happening at one time. Yeah, no, I, de I definitely think this would be a regional issue. Uh, it's it's going to depend from market to market. Like I, you know, I can tell you, I know, I know a couple of investors that if uh, in our surrounding area here, Macomb and uh, Macomb, Oakland, Wayne County, uh, they own entire city blocks. You know, they own they they own 50, 60 homes, and they own they, every single one of them. <laughs> And so I guess, you know, so if they were to release those all at once, obviously that'd be a problem, which I don't think they'd want to do. Uh, but at the end of the day, like I said, I think it would definitely help the inventory issue uh, if it was done in a controlled manner. Uh, and I, again, would love to see it because I can tell you in Macomb County, where we're based, we've been sitting on anywhere from 0.8 to 1.2 months of inventory for, I've lost count how many years it's been this way now. Um, we just, you, you cannot build affordable housing in, in today's marketplace. And so because of that, you know, rents are at all time highs. And so you have the renters that are getting priced out of the market. It's just, it's a big vicious circle. So I would think if we had people that could unload some of their investment properties and not pay that capital gains tax, it would definitely help. It, it really would. It's not going to get us back to a normal market, but it would at least help. Well, from the investor standpoint that's selling, you would think that you wouldn't want to put them all on the market at the same time, especially in a situation like that, because it could impact what you're going to receive out of them as well if they all kind of flood the market at the same time. Whereas if you kind of doled them out, you know, a little bit at a time, you would think it would be better on the investor side to do that anyway. Oh, yeah. No, and I, I would think they'd take it that approach for no other reason than uh, one everyone's going to have a different uh, amount of time left on their lease. And is it the renter that's going to buy it or is it going to go out to the free market? Um, that's all going to try. So they couldn't necessarily do it all at once. But yeah, I think in a controlled manner, yeah, because if you put them all out there at once, now all of a sudden someone goes from having no options. Well, I've got 60 options here to pick from. I can take my time. <laughs> I can figure out which one I want. Yeah, so no, but I would think that if they're smart enough to build it. that portfolio, yeah, yeah, they're not going to do that to themselves. <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't think so. I wouldn't think so. So we were talking um, before before we uh, clicked on here today. We were talking about you know the other hot topic that is um, in the mortgage industry everywhere today because it has continued and continued and continued to increase, which is reducing the cost of a mortgage. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm an Iowa girl. Everybody that listens into this show probably knows that. I grew up in Iowa, but I also never wanted to live um, in rural America, but this is going on in Iowa. Um, you know, their title insurance situation is completely different than anywhere else. And so um, apparently there are five title insurance companies that own 80% of the market of title insurance. Um, this article uh, says that only three to 4% um, of them collected money to actually pay out um, on claims. So a small amount of claims, the rest gets put into profits um, in those types of situations. So share with me your knowledge on title insurance. It's far greater than mine. So, so share with me 
kind of how you felt about this when you when you read it and what your is. Yeah, when I read that, it's actually kind of funny because it it kind of parroted a um, a thought that I had about the title industry many many years ago. <laughs> I like this just seems like a scam. No one ever uses this. And then you get further into your career and you start running into those issues where uh, you have actual title claims. You now realize, and I think I was mentioning to you, I you don't get the claims a lot. You you just don't. So a lot of people see it as a worthless type of insurance. But I will tell you, when those claims do come to be they're more than just the loan amount because now all of a sudden they're paying between legal fees and attorneys and everything else. I literally have two going on right now. Um, I haven't had any in a while, but I have two going on simultaneously. Combined, the loans are about $400,000, but I guarantee you by the time they're done, they're spending six, $800,000 minimum on these to get these all, get these all taken care of between court costs, the attorneys, you know, being sued for wrongfully closing a loan. It's just, it's having to settle. It's going to be significantly more expensive. Now, do I disagree that, uh, or do I agree with the fact that maybe they put a little bit into the profits more than they should? You know what? That's why we live in a capitalist society. That's that's the reality. Who's to say who's making too much money? I mean, I could say they are, but that's just my opinion. Other people would say they're not making enough. It's completely up to them. But Iowa is interesting because I've done a couple loans there and they don't have title companies in reality. They just, uh, it's an interesting situation and it does make it very, very inexpensive for them. But they also, I don't, I actually don't know what their populations are, population is at this point, but uh, I know it's not nearly as populous as our, our, you know, major mortgage markets. That's for sure. Something that I didn't know when we were talking earlier that, you know, the title that someone has on a property there also looks different when you get it and that they yeah. track every single owner of the property. Yeah. The way I understand it, um, like I said, I've never lived there, but as it explained to me by a couple of people is that when you buy a home in that market, you actually, you get this, buy, I'm assuming it's a binder, but it's a book that lists every person that's ever owned that house. And so they're tight. So you always know who owns what exactly when, just by looking at your book, period. And, and so because of that, whereas, you know, every other state does it a little bit differently. You have California that does it runway, Michigan does it another way, New York, maybe slightly different. And so- you definitely have bigger issues. And I can tell you back in the nineties when we had a, you know, the big refi booms really started back then people were, bu- were buying and refining so many times, getting those recordings up to date, which just it was near impossible. Now the e-recordings we're doing now would help do that, uh, would help uh, solve those issues. But title companies were taking huge hits on the, at that time because there were liens that weren't being paid off and people tried to sell the homes, you know, years later. And yeah, they were getting dinged left and right for that. Um, so again, it's who said their risk may not be there today. Market shifts and we start getting that busy again. And next thing you know, their losses get ramped up and all of a sudden it's not near as big as it was. Yeah. You know, so um, I think it's all matter of timing. Yeah, it is. But I think the concept of people trying to think outside the box and to reduce some of those rates and everything, I think is always, always a good it's thing. It's always nice. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. always nice and thinking about that. Um, someone in the audience, Alice, um, I've been, I'm being told by um, one of my team members that you had your hand up. Is there something that you wanted to share? You want to pop it into the chat if you do, or maybe you didn't mean to have your hand up. (laughs) Uh, Jamie as well. Jamie, are you interested in popping into the conversation and saying something?
I'm going to take that. Jamie, I've I've let you in if you want if you want to add commentary. I know that you're a um, you're a Minnesota person. I know Jamie. Yeah. Apparently that was in air, as was the other one, and we are right. No, I was just pushing buttons. You were just pushing buttons. You're in so much trouble, Jamie. So yeah. much trouble. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's good to hear but this has voice. been a great show so far. Great job for both of you. I have good stuff. Really good stuff. Well, well thank, thank you. you. Thank you. That's very sweet. And we're at the bottom of the hour. And there we okay. go. It goes so fast. I always fast. say that. I think every week because I'm shocked by how fast it is. But it's always great when you have um, good conversation with someone that you consider a good friend, and it's all about the industry that we both love so much, which is the yes. mortgage industry. So appreciate you all joining us. We will be back next week at the same time. Mark Renell, we appreciate you. I cannot wait to see you in yep, Nashville. Yep. Again, I'll see you in Nashville. I'll be there. Sounds great. Thanks, right. everybody. Thank you, everyone. For more information about how you can get involved with TMC Connect and witness the power of the network firsthand, please visit us at mortgagecollaborative.com.